welcome to the two-year Bible, a custom-designed two-year Bible reading plan with a weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church, and Sarah Pasquale, the executive director here at Resonate. Hey, everybody. Glad you're with us again. Hopefully, your second week has gone well, uh, and it's been fruitful for you to kind of read through uh, the early parts of Genesis and early parts of Luke as well. And so, we're picking up kind of right uh, right at the front of the flood actually taking place. And um, hopefully this week you were able to find that chiasm. Uh, there's some definitely numbers like 7, 7, 40, 150, 150, 40, 7, 7, stuff like that, that, that make it a little bit easier to find. And right at the middle of that is a statement that God remembers Noah. So cool. <clears throat> that That is central of, of God not giving up on people, not giving up on humanity, but God remembers and he remembers this righteous one, uh, which is even more, I think, a point forward to Jesus and uh, saves uh, saves Noah and his family, that through, through Noah and uh, his family would be saved. And so uh, we get a lot of creation overtones uh, in in the story. I think uh, there's ways that uh, we're meant to see these overtones with uh, evening and morning. Um, oh, yeah, and and um, things like uh, there's a bird over the water, there's animals, there's dry land, there's all this kind of stuff that uh, is meant to to be uh, similar to um, the six days of creation. And yeah, so- I mean, in chapter nine we see the cultural mandate again, and then we even see a little poem in nine verse six, uh, not so much about uh, man being created, but it says at the end, "For God made man in his own image." So it's yeah. almost a yeah, and I think it's meant Rebirth. to. I think uh, uh, as much as Jesus really is the second Adam, Noah is almost like Adam 1.2. <laughs> and, yeah. and Jesus is really Adam 2.0. But um, it's sort of this this recreation story where it's sort of the question of, all right, will, will, will recreation go the way uh, it should with this righteous one? And we find out that sin really is still effective. Uh, sin is still doing what sin does. Um, and it's still wreaking havoc uh, even after the flood. And so <clears throat> once again, we, we find – uh, Noah, um, he, he gets drunk and we find nakedness again. We find, uh, so we seem to see the sort of sin to come into the, the equation again. And not only that, but we see curses, we see curses again. In a lot of ways, um, this story, uh, has so many parallels with Genesis one through three. And I think it's meant to, uh, and, and we'll see even, uh, how the story after this plays in and, um, how Babel is re- retelling, uh, Cain and Abel a little bit. And so <clears throat> there's a lot of ways there's supposed to be parallels between between these stories and then eventually genealogies and then we'll get to Abraham. And so, yeah, uh, I think the sin of Noah in some way should give us hope because it's a reminder that, that Noah was not saved because he didn't sin. And, but, but he was saved by faith. Like we see in Hebrews 11, just like we can be saved. It's not because we don't sin that we are worthy Yep. Of being saved. <clears throat> Which I think is kind of a beautiful part about all, almost all the characters we get in scripture is yeah. uh, they move forward by faith, but they are certainly not perfect. And um, they're Noah's, not our best role models. Noah's, in many Noah's ways. a pretty quick example of that. Yeah. When they trust by faith and move forward, great. And, and things go well, or that uh, God is. Uh, God is glorified in that, but their consistency in that is not the reason why God does or does not um, love them and care for them. So we see our first covenant in scripture here. 
Yeah, and so covenants, uh, covenants are important. Uh, they are, in a lot of ways, the, the 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 simplest term is agreement, but I know there's so much deeper than that. <clears throat> and so, um, what you get is sort of this agreement. Uh, but and this, at least in this covenant, and we're going to see another one next week. But at least in this one, um, it is what's called a unilateral covenant. It's it's one way that God says, "Look, I am not going to do this again," and He doesn't put any conditions on that. He He doesn't. Um, say, hey, Noah, as long as you and your family obey, I'm not going to send another flood. It's saying, no, I'm just not going to do this again, at least not the way I was uh, I was going to do it before. Uh, and then there's some beauty in um, kind of how it ends. He gives a sign of the covenant. And, it's a, and we always interpret it as a rainbow, and I think it is a rainbow. But uh, the, the word for rainbow in Hebrew is also the same word that would be used for a bow and arrow, uh, like that kind of bow. And uh, if you look at a rainbow, it's, it's curved uh, with the arch going up, which uh, – ultimately would be a bow and arrow pointed heavenward for yeah. these people. And so, so it's a um, foretelling of the fact that, that the next judgment will come on Jesus Christ. Right. If the covenant comes with stipulations of, of penalty, the penalty will be absorbed by God himself, uh, which is such a beautiful part of the story. And, and God does, God does absorb the penalty for the fact that humanity continues to sin beyond the, beyond Noah. And, and, uh, and so, uh, but the covenant's beautiful. It's a, a statement that God um, will provide common grace for all people. Yeah, and we'll see quite a few more covenants come up throughout our time reading the Bible. So pay attention to them. Covenants are important for us. Yeah, and next week we'll talk about Abraham's one, which is really, really important as well. At least the blood covenant setup that they do there. And so we get uh, some genealogy and descendants uh, of Noah, uh, and we get some cursing and all that. I'm not going to go into that. There's some good podcasts. Maybe I'll link to one um, around what is happening there, what what isn't. There's a lot of disagreement on exactly what happens and why uh, that curse takes place. Uh, but we get these nations. We get a list of nations. Um Sarah, Which is kind yeah. of fun because you see the root of all these things you're going to continue to read about in Kings and Chronicles and Judges. Like now you know where the Canaanites are from. Yeah. Things you, like that. You can see some common ancestry. And then we get the Tower of Babel. Uh, we get these people who um, initially say, look, hey, they're making bricks. And, and God doesn't necessarily intervene with the brick making. So the brick making is probably a good thing. They're, they're continuing to cultural mandate. They're continuing to build, continuing to do things. But then they say, let's go build something for our name and, and for our fame and for uh, our own uh, identity. And that's where God seems to have a problem. Uh, <laughs> it's almost you think back to Eve and the serpent because they want to be like God. And right. who else said that to Eve? You can be like God, knowing yep. good and evil. And and so uh, there's a problem there. And God certainly intervenes. But once again, uh, there's some comedic parts of this, I think, in the way that God speaks of, of how he comes down. It's almost like um, – he, he sees his children making like a Lego tower when he's like the architect of the universe and said, oh, isn't it cute isn't that, that, nice you've, that you you've built that this little tower for me? Uh, and uh, and so he intervenes and, and scatters people, disperses them uh, and, and gives them language and all these things. Um, and uh, but I think there's a beautiful New Testament tie in there, too. What, what um, Sarah, for you? when you read about the scattering of the languages and stuff like that, what, what's a callback for you when you read the New Testament? Well, I think of Pentecost when everybody was speaking different languages, but all the people heard one language. So Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit is spread out among all of God's people, is almost like a backwards undoing of Babel. Yeah, it's like a reunification of humanity by the work of the Spirit, which is so, so cool. Yeah, I also think with Babel and 
and they're wanting to build a tower to be up like God and be like God is is a just a, a great misunderstanding of who God is. Yeah. And so it's a word and a warning of caution to us as well. Like we need to know and understand God. And when we truly understand who God is and who we are, we will interact with him and worship him. The I guess the right way or in a way that is honoring to God and not, and is not too prideful. Yeah. And so we get some descendants. We get Shem's descendants, Terah's descendants. Uh, once again, names can be kind of interesting here. Uh, and, and even, uh, as Abram and company leave, uh, uh, leave Ur, um, Good questions of what their names are and why, like Terra means delay. So is that tied into this? And Haran is a barren place. And so um, names, city names, all those are super interesting. But then we get the call of Abraham, which if, if you were to point to like one thing in the New Testament, other than maybe some of the Christological sections of scripture that are very clearly about Jesus, like this is a significant moment in, in, in the storyline because up till now, God has been a little bit removed and responding to sin and brokenness, but now he enters into the equation to say, no, 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 I am partnering with a people and I, and I choose yeah. this man named Abram and I am entering into the, the story in a unique new way. Um, and, yeah. And he does so. Genesis twelve three. I mean, God bl- promises to bless Abram, not just for his sake, but so that he would be a blessing and all families of the earth would be blessed through him. So even from before there is a nation of Israel, we see a promise that God's blessing is for more than just one nation or for more than just Abraham's genealogical line. Yeah. It's the beauty of God's heart. And, and this is something that Sarah, you talked about in one of the, the primers, like the, the beauty of God's heart really for all the nations and how that is such a unifying idea. I mean, even from the garden that Adam and Eve were supposed to go to the ends of the earth and be uh, bring God's image to the ends of the earth and uh, I think Abram now called bless bless the ends of the earth bless all the nations around you I'm not blessing you so that you can sit back and enjoy it I'm blessing you uh, for you to go on and be a blessing to others and he's called to this new place which um, he's called to leave his family which is a pretty significant uh, if you were to understand particularly honor shame cultures and how uh, uh, um understanding the, the, the father and the son and all those sort of things and how they work in families back then. That's, that's a pretty significant statement to say, hey, leave your your father's home. Uh, that's your identity. That's your community. That's your job. There's so many pieces of that and that would require um, just trusting God even above cultural norms. And, uh, and Abram had to move forward with trust in, in what God said and not say, hey, like, I can't. It's shameful for me to leave my father. But it's like, no, no, no. You trust God first and foremost. And he goes. And he goes to this land. Um, and what does he find there? Famine. <laughs> right. Yeah, this land that's supposed to be the place where he grows this great nation. And the first thing he finds out is that there's famine in the land. Um, and okay. I think he's immediately left with this question of, well, where, what is Abram going to do? Is he going to trust God and see if God still provides in the land? Or is he go where, guess what? There's a river and it's always there and there's a whole lot of green farmland and there's plenty of food when there's a famine. And guess what? He goes to where there's not, uh, where there's food. Um, and he goes down to Egypt. And so as you're reading that story this past week, it's an interesting story. Uh, I think a lot of um, rocks get thrown at Abram to be like, nope, uh, you're a big liar. How dare you do this? But uh, I, I would argue Abram's just straight up trying to be a little bit manipulative uh, to to try to um, gain for himself food, 
uh, security, finances, food. Uh, I said food, but um, uh, good. He, he is using the fact that he has a very attractive wife. Uh, she's 60 at this point or so. So <laughs> I, I don't know what's going on there. But um, apparently she's attractive enough that everybody takes notice, which is an okay thing. He is the patriarch of the family. So uh, uh, what would happen is all these suitors would come and really try to win Abram over because they need Abram's permission to marry uh, this sister of his who is quote unquote sister. You can't hear quotes on the podcast, but quote unquote sister. And, um, and so they would have gained a whole lot of stuff and they do. Um, but, uh, he has the upper hand against everybody in town except for one person. Pharaoh. Pharaoh. And Pharaoh, she, this woman catches the eye of Pharaoh and, uh, Abram is now stuck. Abram, who is trying to solve his own problems. He is trying to solve his own problems by going to Egypt. I would argue he's trying to solve his own problems even by bringing Lot along for the process. Uh, and, um, and now he's, he's trying to solve his problems and he gets stuck. He doesn't know what to do. Um, and, and it has to come clean. Uh, stuff happens. Uh, obviously this, like disease comes upon Pharaoh and his family. And so, uh, Abram kind of has to own it, but it kind of works out for him. <laughs> he gets all the stuff and he <laughs> leaves town. Uh, but I think he, uh, we're going to have to go into the story of whether he's actually learned his lesson in the process. Yeah. And, um, and I think it's interesting considering what Abram knew of God at the time, which yeah. was, uh, next to nothing. Yeah, I, and, and if I was him, uh, shoot, I I might have gone down to Egypt too. I mean, if I got to a land and be like, well, nothing's growing right now, and I need to feed my family, um, I, I don't know. I don't know if I if I would have the same amount of faith to be like, well, God, you said this was going to be the land, so I'm going to stay here or not. So it's hard to totally blame Abram for going down to Egypt. We're not totally sure if we should or not. Right. Um, and did he know God is loving? Right. Did he know God? I mean, he didn't know God is Yahweh. Right. That name wasn't given yet. I mean, yeah. God didn't have a name. We don't. We know very little about God. Yeah, and so uh, he goes back uh, to the land. Eventually, his herd and Lot's herd are having all sorts of disagreements about the land itself, um, and uh, eventually they they kind of separate the land, uh, which is. Uh, I, I, I think a, an interesting moment for Abram. I, I don't know if that's the moment where it seems like he's learned his lesson because if he's going to have a family and have an heir and his wife is barren he has to bring Lot along in his mind. Lot is how that's going to take place because he is now sort of the heir in terms of the family. And so uh, I think Abram's like, well, if I'm going to have a nation, it's got to come ultimately through Lot. That's the only way my name is going to continue on is through um, basically my my nephew here. Um, and eventually he, he kind of lets Lot go. Lot gets captured. Uh, we're going to read that. You would have read that this past week. Uh, but then Abram kind of goes to rescue Lot. Um, but then there's this whole interaction with the kings. And, and at the end of that, it, it says that Abram gives back the kings, everything he's taken, everything he's taken to, to try to sort of rescue Lot, he gives back to them. Uh, and there's this interaction with the priests and all. And I would argue that Abram there actually gives Lot back, uh, that, that Abram, Lot is included with that. Because the very next time we see Lot in the storyline, guess where he is? Sodom. Yeah. He, he is back with the kings that just asked for their stuff back. And if he was captured, then Lot would have been included with those people. And I think Abram here is, and that story is, is saying, look, I don't know how God's going to do it. 
but me trying to figure this out and manipulate it myself is not working. I learned my lesson from Egypt. I'm learning my lesson from Lot and God, I'm going to trust you. And, and I think that's even why, as you read this week, that one of the very first questions that Abraham has is, God, how is this going to happen? You have to help me understand how I'm going to have a child. So when you read the, the story this week, uh, that's like one of the first things that comes up in Abram's story. Yeah, there's some patterns here too. Like God speaks to Abram and calls him and then Abram goes to Egypt and is disobedient. Then God gives Abram another reiteration and promise and then um, he does his response to Melchizedek the king and then, which we'll see in chapter 15 next week, I think, yeah. there's, there's another covenant. So God continually comes in whether Abram has earned that or not and speaks and gives him promises because again, the covenant is not based on Abram's behavior, but on God's promise and commitment. Which is interesting because uh, we just, uh, we're going to see Abraham be demanding kind of the very beginning of the text that you guys read this week. And so um, it's, it's uh, a a constant theme uh, for Abraham uh, to, to struggle with this question of, do I trust, do I trust God with the story? Let's, let's move to the new Testament uh, reading uh, that we had this week and looking at Luke uh, and starting with the second chapter here, kind of midway through. Um, and so we get uh, boy Jesus at the temple uh, and it, it's an interesting story. There's a little bit of a uh, question for me and um, uh, there was a teaching of how to become a rabbi and uh, there was a school, uh, the, the Israelites had set up kind of schools that you would go through uh, and just about every child would go through the same school. And then right around 13, the good old bar and bat mitzvah age, uh, you would at that point uh, either continue on the progress of learning to be a rabbi or go into whatever your family's trade is. And so Jesus is here, right? Kind of right before the crossroads of, mm-hmm. will I do uh, my father Joseph's job of being uh, a tecton, a carpenter or a worker? Uh, and will I, or will I do uh, the job of my heavenly father? Uh, which which he's sitting there going, I'm here in the temple. This is my father's work. This is my father's house. And so um, it's an interesting sort of uh, play out. And he ends up kind of obviously going the route of being a carpenter, but at the same time, he, he spends his life doing his his heavenly father's job as well. So I have a question for you. Yeah, of course. What is the difference between a rabbi and a Levite and a scribe, all of these different roles in scripture? I mean, Levites are restricted to the Levitical tribe. Yeah. So the Levites are the priests. Uh, their role is... Um, uh, temple work more than anything else. So uh, their their role is the sacrifices. Their role is um, um, yeah temple management for mm-hmm. the most part. Uh, and and all that um, came from family lineage. And then if you were Aaronic, uh, so from the line of Aaron, you could be a high priest. Uh, and so uh, that was the priest. The the scribes were the uh, in a lot of ways the interpreters of the law, particularly in relationship to the priest. Uh, so they were the ones who would uh, scour over the law as well to help uh, define what is legal code for the Israelites. Um, But the rabbis really uh, appeared. um, uh, So uh, during the exile, there there was a drawback to why do we get here and how do we not get here again? And uh, that was the rise of synagogues. They they decided, look, in order to not get here, we have to know our Torah and we have to obey our Torah. And so synagogues started rising of how to learn the Torah, where where to learn the Torah, particularly when we're in exile. So they started building synagogues in exile. Uh, and then uh, and then the rabbis formed uh, to be the teachers of that, uh, the, the people who would help uh, un, the the commoners, the the everyday folks, not the people going to the temple, but the, but but just everybody in the countryside, Galilee, and all these different places learn the Torah well, and so 
So could anyone from any tribe be a rabbi? It was just something yeah, that you were tribal like passionate about. All. And at this point in time, uh, there wasn't a lot of even uh, tribal definitions. Right. Uh, but um, a lot of tribes were kind of lost at this point in history. And and so yeah, you could be anybody to be a rabbi. Now uh, you had to be you had to be appointed by uh, a rabbi to be a rabbi. So there's interesting questions of whether John the John the Baptist might have had some rabbinic background and, and things like that. Not everybody would be called teacher. It would definitely be uh, a very formal office that you would be uh, in. Uh, but Jesus might get his authority from somebody else, and as opposed to a previous rabbi, and maybe even in his baptism, when God says, "This is my son, in whom I'm well pleased," maybe that is the authority given to Jesus as well. Both John cool. the Baptist and and God, which you would have a double piece of authority, which would be really important as a Jew as well. Hence, why uh, when we read things like Matthew. Matthew always has like two people at a situation versus one person. Uh, so Luke will speak about one blind man and Matthew will have two blind men. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the idea that two people are there to witness something or two people are there to experience something is huge in Jewish thought and not as huge in Greek thought. Uh, so um, it's like you need multiple witnesses and things like that. So anyways, yeah, that would be the rise of the rabbinic world. Uh, that, but rabbis were generally like revered and honored. It was yeah, an honorable absolutely. position. Extremely honorable. Um uh, when when Jesus chooses uh, the the these boys to be his disciples, um, there's there's a little bit of thought of like oh like how how dishonoring that they would leave their family. But but I w- I would probably argue a, a first century mom's dad would say no 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 this is an absolute honor that my child get chosen uh, to go do this to to go be to study under a rabbi to continue to learn what it means. Uh, so most like when thirteen came around, it was sort of this moment where. Um, the, the authorities would say, no, no, you know what? You're not cut out for this. Go, mm-hmm. go, go fish, go do something. Uh, and uh, in a lot of ways, it, it would ha- carry that message of, hey, you're just not good enough um, to be a true religious leader in our, in our, in our world. Um, and so for, for Jesus to choose these sort of, in some ways, nobodies, uh, already rejected, already kind of uh, denied uh, what it looks like uh, to, to really be the leaders that God has called them to be um, was, cool. was a total honor for them. But anyways, uh, and so um, right after the story of Jesus in the temple, we get John the Baptist, which uh, is always a fascinating story. He's a fascinating character study. Uh, we we yeah. get phrases like the spirit and the power of Elijah. Uh, there's a lot of Elijah references. Even Matthew includes uh, statements about his garment and his belt, which are straight up uh, from Elijah about um, what he's wearing and how he's dressed. Um, and it seems like uh, John the Baptist is out in uh, the desert. He's obviously near the Jordan and, and baptizing in the Jordan. Uh, and so there's a big question because we, we know his dad was a priest uh, from the previous reading that we just had. And so if his dad was a righteous priest, there's a likelihood uh, this dad might have been not in Jerusalem, but out here kind of near the Dead Sea with this community called the Essenes, who were kind of the priests that said, hey, we're rejecting uh, the corrupt group of priests, and we want to be the priests that are faithful to the text, faithful to understanding our Torah, faithful to obey the Torah, but they were kind of separatists in the process. And so if John the Baptist is under this crowd, uh, he would have been an Essene, and and the idea uh, historically is that the Essenes had their own practice of washings that were very different uh, than some of the other groups. Uh, so Pharisees and others, and we'll see this in Jesus's walk and Jesus's critique of the of the Pharisees had very washing, like they would wash hands, they would wash things in, in temple and and certain things like that. It was very ritualistic, very uh, kind of normative in practice. But the Essenes had a 
baptism of repentance that that they practice that that um, was historic of of saying, look, uh, the way we are living now is corrupt and is not okay. We we are uh, repenting, we are turning from our corrupt ways, and we are being baptized uh, to to symbolize that to, to to symbolize this washing and and walking towards obedience, walking towards what God's desire is, which I think even gets into this text. Like you eventually get this tax collector um, saying, well, how do I now live? And and Jesus responds, don't take more money than you should. We get the Roman soldiers saying, how kind of how how am I supposed to live? And and Jesus responding, don't extort other people with your power and your money. So um, yeah, there's there's sort of a, a clear play out of a desire to to turn from some other way of living. And Jesus going, no, no, no here's how you now live. Uh, and there's fruit, uh, there's fruit that that should be played out, which we see Jesus make reference or John make reference. Sorry, John make reference to to uh, fruit or Jesus make reference to fruit there. Yeah. yeah, and and we see John trying to be really clear about the fact that he's not the Christ to come because people are looking for the Christ and they think he's the Christ, and so he makes this promise of. Someone else going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And again, for the, I think the second time in this podcast, what does that make us think of? But Pentecost. Yeah, yeah. And and it's interesting because there's a question of really what, what John might be referring to because John has this very like condemning moment where he's talking about the, the winnowing fork is in his hand. And and I, I would argue it seems like John is expecting um, what is sort of this two-age uh, understanding of eschatology, uh, this kind of end times understanding of things, that uh, there was the age that we are stuck in at, and, and, and it is sin and brokenness and, and captivity and all these things. And once the Messiah comes, then we will finally be set free. We will finally have our freedom and he will judge the unjust and he will uh, reestablish and drive out. Um, he will reestablish Israel, drive out the oppressors, and set everything right. And I think John functions with this mindset because uh, I think the way he phrases things, and he talks about the threshing floor, which I, I would argue is the temple, since David bought a threshing floor uh, to build the temple on. Um, there's all these sort of understandings of things that uh, it seems like John functions out of, which you'll find in 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 a, a later story uh, of John's life. John gets arrested and eventually is. Um, watches Jesus kind of heal a, a Roman centurion or hears about it. Uh, and then I think the question is, uh, Jesus, are you sure you're here to do what you're, you were, we thought you were here to do? Because I, I think he thought, how dare you heal the people that are oppressing us? Like, Jesus, you're supposed to be driving out the Romans, let alone uh, not not healing them and 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 giving them dignity and, and inclusion into the kingdom. And so, um, there's some interesting play out of exactly what John the Baptist. I, I think he knows that Jesus is the Messiah, but I think he misunderstands what kind of Messiah Jesus is going to be. And so, um, and then we get Jesus's baptism, which carries with it great language that uh, should sound like a callback uh, to to multiple things. I I would I would argue, like where do we see water? In, in scripture, like um, in, well, in major stories. In of, the, so, I mean, in the beginning of Genesis, the yeah. spirit of God is hovering over the waters and suddenly the Holy Spirit is hovering like a dove here over Jesus and God speaks, um, yeah. speaks life over earth. And then he speaks, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. So we see a similar pattern in um, Noah and Exodus and Joshua. Yeah. We, we see this, this pattern of, um, kind of creation and and um, establishing of a people or establishing of this major movement. Now, 
the fascinating thing is um, what happens after each of those moments. We have creation uh, and, and it includes creation of man and woman. And then we have a, a test or a temptation. We have uh, the establishment of Noah and the bringing off the boat. And then we kind of get this test and temptation. We get Exodus and they get into the desert and through the Red Sea and then they get a test and temptation. So you have all these moments uh, that, that are constant. Now we get the genealogy kind of stuck in there, but it's Yeah, I think even with the genealogy coming after this point, it's meant to point us back to Adam and that we're seeing this new creation, this new Adam. And then the genealogy seems to emphasize quite a bit of, of this idea of Jesus' son. Yeah. Uh, Jesus in his father's house or this whole section in, in chapter two, uh, Jesus' baptism with God saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And that takes you again back to the cultural mandate uh, or right before God blesses them before they do anything. And then in the genealogy, we we see Adam defined as the son of God. And we know that that is also Jesus. Yep. Yeah, it's awesome. So he's setting, yeah, I mean, Luke is setting us up to, setting up the argument to prove that Jesus is is the better and true Adam. True, yeah, he's the, the true human, uh, like the the right, the, the pure, the perfect human, uh, because he's God too. And um, But we get the temptation story, and it's sort of this question. <laughs> you got to imagine uh, some of the people that were there at Jesus' baptism watching him go into the desert going, oh no, <laughs> is this going to happen again? Because mm. every other time uh, we, we've kind of had this moment, uh, things have gone really poorly. Uh, Adam and Eve fall, Noah falls, uh, the Israelites struggle with their temptations. They, they, there's, there's, their sin has run amok amongst humanity, and we cannot get over our, uh, our struggles. And yeah, it is a pretty cool Exodus parallel because you see Jesus going under the water and coming out, and then moving into the desert, just like Israel went through the Red Sea. They went through the waters of judgment. They passed freely through the waters of judgment and into the desert, where they then failed. Right, and not only that, but he, he's quoting some of the the text from he, from yeah. from the Israelites of saying, "Look, man does not live on bread alone," and things like that. Like that is straight up uh, uh, Exodus language. And uh, the temptations that he's experiencing, I, I would say, parallel greatly with um, the Israelites' uh, temptations. And so, um, but what does Jesus do? He, he gets tempted by uh, Satan. Satan has uh, the, sort of these temptations presented to him, and, and Jesus responds. And he responds with… Is this the first time in Scripture, I could be wrong, I'm not remembering everything right now, but is this the first time in Scripture we see someone tempted and then overcoming and obeying God. Um, I'm just trying to think because yeah, there's so no, many no, stories no. of I, our I, I think there's uh, I think there's temptations where, where people certainly obey and, and move forward faithfully. I think uh, it's not failure every single time. Uh, but I, th- I think the way that uh, Luke's presenting this is um, kind of pointing back to these major turns in the story where people or a, a people or a person have been majorly tempted or a father where and all of those stories coming out of the water, coming into sort of a new relationship with God or, or something along those lines, they failed every time. Yeah. Uh, because we see Abraham. Right. Or like Joseph. Life, he goes up and down. With Potiphar's and wife are, and Sometimes stuff like he's, that. he's obedient. Yeah. And and Joseph certainly is tempted by Potiphar's wife and, and flees and runs away naked and uh, all the other things with that. But um, yeah. So I, I think there's, there's times where people have been obedient. But I think Luke's going, look, every major movement – of God in the past and, and every major turning point we have failed as humans. And now with this new creation story, this new Exodus story, will finally someone escape the temptation and be obedient. And Jesus does. And he does it by things like, look, here's what God said. <laughs> like he, he responds in every moment going, no, this, this is what God has said. And I, I trust, I trust what my father or ultimately himself, I, I trust what has been said. I trust the story. I trust God. I trust, um, 
um, what has been revealed. And, um, and he always answers Satan. And even more interestingly, Satan sort of pseudo quotes scripture at times. And, uh, and so, but which but sounds Jesus very knows. similar yeah. to Genesis three. Yeah. And, and, but Jesus knows it and, and he knows enough of, of the word. I mean, he's, he's, he's God man and, and he knows it and, and can say, no, 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 you, you're not right. Like you, you have spoken a falsehood, even though it sounds really, really close to truth, which uh, should get into even questions of, uh, uh, and convictions and, and even, um, sometimes uh, struggles I have of um, do I know the text enough so that if I hear something that sounds really, really close to being right, that I can point out what's wrong and, and able to say, no, 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 that's not what the text actually says. That's not what scripture actually says. Uh, because I, I think we live in a world right now uh, where people do that all the time uh, yeah. and, and say things that sound really close to true. Um, and, and every major movement, prosperity gospel, uh, different versions of gospel that, that sound and use text in ways that, that sound pretty true but they're just off. They're just, they, they missed the, the main point or they missed this one extra phrase that would have completely changed everything about it. Does God want to bless you? Absolutely. Does God want to bless you financially? No, not necessarily. <laughs> and so- it Depends on uh, who you are, yeah. Yeah, and, and to use a few pieces of scripture that, that talk about that and use it to create a whole theological framework. Um, yeah, it's just dangerous. And so, but he, he succeeds. He comes out of the desert faithfully. Obediently, he does not give in to the temptations of the enemy. And then he begins his ministry. Yeah, and, and he gets uh, his hometown. Heads home to Nazareth, <laughs> which is kind of a bummer how that all works out. Yeah, and and it's uh, super interesting. He reads uh, an Isaiah scroll, and I don't think uh, he's haphazardly choosing that. I think it's God's perfect divine Kairos timing that he shows up to town and in his own hometown. He would be part of a um, ongoing rotation of people that would read the scrolls. Everyone in town would be part of the rotation. They would come into the temple. They would read a scroll on a certain day. And the scroll he reads is one of the perfect ones all about himself and all about uh, from Isaiah uh, speaking of sort of his mission, what he's come to do. So, but then the people he grew up with and grew up around get mad and they try to drive him out of town and kill him. Yeah. But I, I think the reason why they get mad is is because he eventually goes, hey, uh, I'm, I'm not necessarily here for for you guys it's like i'm here to tell the good news to you but but then he goes into two different stories that are about these people who where where the israelites don't necessarily get the benefits of the story but a total gentile character does where it's a tishbite widow it's a syrian general and and i think jesus here and and luke right away establishes look my mission yes certainly to the nation of israel but it is to bless the Gentiles too. And, and they struggle with that. They, they struggle to understand that. I think in the story of going, no, 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 you like do stuff for us. And, and, and his, his statement and, and same struggle with John, like I'm, I'm my, what I'm here to do is, is to not just bless you, but, but to bless your enemies and to bless those on the outside and to bless those um, who are oppressing and bless. I'm, I'm seeking to bless all nations. Back to Genesis 12, three. All families yeah. on the earth. And I think this is a great example of honor, shame, culture, and that Jesus represents his entire town. And so it's not that one crazy guy, but suddenly Nazareth is associated with this guy who so many people think are crazy or who's offending and upsetting all of the religious leaders. Yep, absolutely. So they're, they're kind of trying to silence the what they perceive to be shameful. Yeah, absolutely. And then we get uh, our psalm or proverb of uh, the week. Uh, we have Psalm 67, which includes this beautiful blessing of the nations, and, and it's uh, I would argue going back to that call of Abram and, uh, and, and sort of a song tied into a, uh, God's covenant, uh, initial covenant with Abram. And so uh, it's a good thing to reflect on uh, because 
most of us listening are probably from the nations. Like we are here, we are uh, knowing God and we have a relationship with God because God's desire to bless mm-hmm. the nations. Yeah. And so uh, next week, uh, things to look out for. Uh, as you read Jesus's teachings, um, try to try to think through or try to do a little bit of homework uh, because um, I, I would argue in all four gospels um, that uh, the stories that we get often have um, references, tiebacks, um, or tie-ins to Old Testament stories or Old Testament moments or Old Testament texts and um, to, to do a little bit of cross-reference work. I'll include a link to a website that'll help uh, with cross-reference um, kind of finding those things. Um, but but I think it's super interesting sometimes to be like, hey, that story was short. I don't understand why it's in there. Uh, it's probably because uh, there's a deeper text, there's a deeper uh, story that it might be referring to that those who know their Torah know that the text would go, oh yeah, like Jesus is doing what that prophet talked about in the Old Testament. And and we just read it going, oh, cool, Jesus healed a guy. Um, but there may be so much more to it. than Yeah, that. The, the more we see the connection of the Old Testament and, and the work of Christ, I think the more beautiful the work of Christ will, will be to us because yeah. we'll understand more and more levels of meaning and significance. Right. Yeah, it's like Jesus healed a leper. Cool. It's like, no, no, no. You have to know what the Old Testament said about lepers and and and, and what that actually symbolized. And so, yeah. yeah. Uh, the other thing I think to look out for in week three of reading, this is the first time we see God given a name. So pay attention to that. What is God named? Who who names him? And why is that remarkable? Why is that noticeable? So look out for that this week. Yeah. And so thanks, y'all. And we'll uh, talk to you next week. Thanks. Bye.